Amen. Let's pray one more time and seek the Lord's grace and His help in the study of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this day. Oh, we're so grateful today. Uh, we can remember and honor and recall the blessedness of the labor and the toil and the faithfulness of the mothers that have reared us and labored over us in our lives and have nurtured us. And so, Father, we're grateful today for our moms and for what mothers do. So we're, we're so thankful just to be here today to recognize that. And Lord, we're excited to receive of your word today. We're decided to uh, be instructed, to be exhorted, to be encouraged by what the scriptures have to say to us today. We pray that you would bring our lives into greater conformity to this word, even as Paul here talks about that very thing. And he talks about the the detrimental effects of going away from your word and rebelling against your instruction and your commands. And so, Lord, keep us in a frame that is humble before you, that is pliable and responsive to your spirit, as your spirit does the work in our lives of transforming, transforming us more and more into the image of, your, of the Son, the image of Jesus. We pray this now by faith. We seek for your help and your blessing and your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are steadily progressing through this uh, epistle, or both of these epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, and we're coming here near the end now, and we only have one more message to go. It's been an amazing journey. It has for me, uh, and excited for what the Lord has for us uh, in the months and hopefully in the years ahead, and uh, uh, just excited to see what the Lord is going to teach us as we continue to go through His Word. Uh, but we still have business with this epistle, and if you notice here, we are tackling quite a few verses, and that's because all these verses really go together in what the Apostle Paul wants to teach us. We have been building a theology, if you would, of what we call a responsible Christianity uh, towards a responsible Christianity, or even what we can talk about today in terms of having a responsible Christian church, or just a responsible church, because uh, that's really what Paul is doing here. He's giving us directives and directions for how we can have a faithful and biblical ecclesiology, how we can have a healthy church. Uh, uh, you've heard of uh, uh, Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Well, here are some marks of a healthy church, and these are indispensable because in reality, they, they, they tackle things that you may not think are the characteristics of a healthy church, but they are. I think much of the confusion comes by way of the fact that today in Christianity, what is regarded as being spiritual, being mature, what ultimately accounts for true spirituality uh, often has little to do with the practical things, like working hard with your hands. Uh, usually, when we think of spirituality, we think of things like prayer. We think of, think of things like worship. We think of things like preaching, evangelism, theology, those kinds of things. But as Paul has already shown us, in order for us to be healthy, whole, responsible uh, Christians, we need to also have the practical aspects of our life brought into conformity with the will of God, and that includes work, uh, that includes in things like employment, how you run your home, 
those kinds of things, finances, all of those kinds of things. And so this has been really instructive for me, but uh, it really just reminds us that Christianity, true Christianity, therefore, consists of both mind and heart. It's both what we do with our faith and with our deeds, with the way that we love, but also the way that we obey practically, principally. And we talked about that last week, what it means to have principled obedience uh, in Christ over against what it means to have fickle obedience, what it means to have obedience that's moved by your circumstances or your emotions. I think what the Word of God is giving us here today is how do we build our lives so that our lives are stable, secure, so that there is a, a fortitude about our Christianity. That's what's important. Now, if we look at the tone of what Paul is talking about here, I think many people would be quite shocked by what Paul is saying here. I think that You can look at this passage in one or two ways. On the one hand, you may think that what Paul is saying here is harsh or or, or is over the top. Or maybe you think, or maybe as you were reading this, you thought maybe the words here are actually too soft. Maybe he's too lenient. Because if you think about it, on the one hand, people may be uh, 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 sort of shocked that Paul here is calling for disassociation with people who live an undisciplined life. Now, let me tell you. Uh, compounded on this uh, in this subject here is the fact that uh, the, 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 the doctrine, the theology, and even more so the practice of church discipline is is not very popular today. Not a lot of churches like to practice church discipline, and if they practice church discipline, they don't really like to talk about it. it doesn't really come to the front. Uh, but the Apostle Paul, of course, gave many, many uh, instructions. There's so many chapters in the Bible on church discipline. I remember when I was preaching to Second Corinthians, uh, that entire letter is almost spoken from a disciplinary tone. Uh, and so church discipline is not a doctrine that we can just do away with. It is not a doctrine we can ignore. And it's certainly not a doctrine that we can choose not to practice in the local church. We must, if we want to be faithful and biblical, we must uh, engage in church discipline. But for people that are not familiar with this, they might think that Paul's words here are sort of legalistic, unloving, even cruel. And this is, of course, uh, the case in many places at the local church. As a matter of fact, uh, because I've done church discipline on a mul- multitude of occasions, uh, I've even had pastors uh, in other churches who have disagreed with the discipline of our church because they think, well, why did they do that? Uh, I don't know, maybe Matthew 18? <laughs> maybe because that's what Jesus calls for in, in, in uh, his, his teaching on church discipline. Yeah, so you see, it's not popular. But at the same time, if you look at this passage, some people might think, well, the passage doesn't go far enough because if you look at verse 15, he's calling that, that we even regard these people that are walking in an undisciplined fashion, we regard them as brethren. You see that? And so maybe some people think, well, he didn't go far enough. He should have just completely uh, rid these people off, wrote these people off, and just uh, left it at that. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this only serves to highlight the complexities and the fine balance that is included in in our ecclesiology and in church discipline issues. And any of you that have seen this, been a part of this, been under discipline, experienced discipline, having gone through the process of church, church discipline, you, underst- you understand how complex and uh, how entangled these things can get. And so it, it takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of balance. It takes careful, prayerful 
consideration. And that's what we need to do. But here, the apostle is reminding the church uh, how to identify people who walk in an undisciplined fashion, how to admonish them, and then how to encourage the members of the church that are walking in a faithful way, that is, that are walking in a disciplined, principled, integrous, virtuous way. And so all those things have to be considered. First, thinking about identifying the undisciplined members of the church. Let's look at the text again, beginning of verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Now remember, if you back up earlier, the apostle already spoke about the fact that that the things that they saw in these unruly people, verse 6, were not according to the traditions that that they had received from Paul, his companions. In other words, it's not in keeping with the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine, the apostolic body of, 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 uh, of theology and teaching and preaching that they had received. This runs contrary, in other words, to the gospel and the elucidations of the gospel. There is no place anywhere in the gospel for this sort of undisciplined behavior. And therefore, Paul says that we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, remember what that word undisciplined means. That term speaks of a person who has stepped out of line. In other words, it's almost like we're all filed together in a line. We're all walking lockstep. We're all in sync with one another. And suddenly someone decides to break break ranks and do his own thing or her own thing and sort of of, uh, 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 become ununified with the body as it were. It's ultimately division. And that's why this whole passage is spoken of in a disciplinary tone. And so, in other words, we have to be willing to identify, okay, what are those issues that people can be guilty of that are overtly sinful violations of God's law? Well, immediately, that just places you right into a church discipline issue if you're unwilling to repent, let's say. But at the same time, uh, this issue in the Thessalonian church had arisen, uh, arisen for a reason because uh, uh, it's probably uh, difficult at times even for the church to Understand when has a person actually become undisciplined? You see, there's probably degrees to this. And so it could be subtle. It could be uh, difficult to discern and certainly even intimidating to address. Um, Every time I tell my wife I have to go address this individual in the church, she goes, oh boy, I'm so glad I don't have your job. Like, what are you talking about? That's all, that's all that, you know, that's all, I, that's all we do is confront one another in the ministry, right? Uh, well, maybe not all. That's one of those pastoral overreaches, but that's okay. You know what I mean. Confrontation is part of ministry. There's no way around this. It's to identify a problem in the body, somebody that's walking in an unruly way, undisciplined, sinful way, uh, walking in a way that's unhealthy, and trying to put the, the joint of the body back in place. It's like somebody has dislocated from the body, and Paul is calling for the body to restore that person back into a healthy function. You know, there's passages everywhere on this. But this kind of behavior needs to be detected because even as the text sort of demonstrates here, the people that are walking like this, notice, it's not just what they're not doing, i.e., they are not working, and so they're idle, they're lazy, they are negligent. But that negligence has metastasized and led to something else, namely becoming a busybody. 
This is why Paul is so harsh when it comes to this issue of, hey, if you're idle to the point where you are not providing for your needs and the needs of others, you need to be addressed. Listen to this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Paul will go so far as to condemn this lazy attitude that he's willing to say that you've become even worse than an unbeliever. Listen to that language. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, look at that. In other words, what what he's saying is, this is sort of parallel to what James talks about. Faith without works is dead. And it doesn't matter how much you appeal to Christianity. It doesn't matter how much you talk about your love for the Lord or your experiences with the Lord. And when it comes down to the, you know, the, 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 the rubber meets the road, if you simply are not willing to provide for yourself and your family, you are denying the faith. It's almost like what Paul says elsewhere. You are denying the power thereof. It didn't change your life. And so this sort of undisciplined manner has progressed. It's led the person to become a busybody. What is a busybody? You know what's ironic about this? The term here, busybody, perergazomai, this word's an interesting Greek word because what it literally means is a person who busies themselves. They should be busy working, right? (laughs) But they don't want to work, and so they have to get busy doing something else. So remarkably, the etymology of this Greek word implies busyness, activity, but it's all the wrong kind of activity. So it's like if you weren't, will not, like Paul and like the apostles, if you will not work hard with your hands and provide and be responsible and pay your taxes and earn a wage and pay your bills and do the things you need to be doing, if you don't do that, guess what? As you're twiddling your thumbs, you'll get busy doing all the wrong things. And so when it says that a person is a busybody, it literally, mean, it literally means that a person is busy in everyone else's business. The word means meddling in other people's affairs. It, it even implies telling other people how to live their lives. There's extra biblical ancient documents that speak of this that it it literally means a person that goes into everybody's life and tell tries to tell you how to live (laughs) it's like (laughs) irony of ironies right you yourself are not living the way you should live and yet you're going around telling the rest of us how we should live that's what a busy body is so somebody in this congregation or a group in this congregation are going around doing this people like that my experience here coming through here now People like that often have lives that are shady, that they don't work consistently. Um, You don't know where they work. You don't know if they've been working. Um, And when you talk to them, they're always elusive. They always appear to be aloof, sort of preoccupied with other things, trivial things, having an appearance of busyness, but really accomplishing nothing and having nothing to show for it. That's That's been the theme consistently and a lot of that, a lot of times, it's uh, it's born out of a misunderstanding that by going to work, you're wasting your time. That you could be doing other, more important, more spiritual things. That's not true. That's not true at all. You guys remember a few what a uh, couple, maybe a couple years ago now, maybe a year ago, where uh, we had the abortion. Uh, I don't want to call it a ministry, but that group. A, 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 I don't even want to say there because then they're going to come out here again. <laughs> we had a group protesting us outside the church. And I had the unpleasant experience of having to go track these people down on social media, interact with them and whatnot. It was just awful. 
Matter of fact, I was contacted by a pastor from New York City who con- contacted me and said, hey, I know one of the guys that's protesting in your church. He's kind of a relative of mine. Uh, be very careful. Uh, the guy's just shady. Uh, he just doesn't, can't keep a job. You know, he's just kind of all over the place, you know, things like that. And matter of fact, uh, people reached out to me to say, you know, I was deep in that movement. And as a matter of fact, um, they got to the point, they became so legalistic that uh, unless I was at an abortion mill protesting with them, they started telling me that I needed to quit my job and I needed to spend more time with the group. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, this is absurd, right? But this is what happens when you have all the wrong theology, tradition that Paul talks about, when you have the wrong theology and when you have the wrong examples around you and when you don't have a healthy church to keep you accountable. So not surprising, none of these people are accountable to a healthy church anywhere. See, the Bible condemns all forms of rogue Christianity. Just Paul has no tolerance for it. There's no category for it. You know when Paul was rogue alone it's when he was in prison it's when he was in prison when he couldn't go to church okay that's the only time paul and even then i've told you multiple times in the book of philippians even from prison paul is keeping accounts with the church it's just remarkable to me it's like paul you're in chains and you're talking about receipts for the church <laughs> you care about the budget of the church and you're in prison i mean Talk about a high ecclesiology. But that's the way that it is, and it's totally contrary, brothers and sisters, to the gospel. Think about it. Jesus told us to be fruitful. He wanted us to be fruitful, productive believers, and he wanted our fruit to remain. Everything about Christianity means that our lives should be stable, regardless of what the calling is. Just because you become a missionary, that doesn't mean you become, you know, a derelict or something. Absolutely not. Matter of fact, you become a missionary, you're more desperate about what you do with every penny on the mission field. So you had better be able to provide for yourself no matter what. And so I think it's important to see it from that gospel perspective. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. When a person is unwilling to work, their heart is not right with the Lord. And our lives need to be filled with the sweet and abiding fruit of the work of the kingdom. And if they're not, then our lives will be complicated by our own sinfulness, our own propensity to do things that are unfitting, undisciplined, unruly, and ultimately rebellious in the church. These kinds of people need to be admonished. And that's the next thing. It's not just identifying those people, but it's also admonishing undisciplined members in the church. And Paul is very forthright here. Look at the gravity of Paul's words. He says in verse 12, now such persons we command and exhort in the name of or in the Lord Jesus Christ to work quiet fashion, to eat their own bread. This is, a, this is a remarkable phrase here because it's intense. It builds on itself. Number one, he commands them, directing them to the commands of God. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think it's verse 37 or something where Paul says that the commands of Paul, the words of Paul, are the commandments of the Lord. And so what Paul is commanding from a position of apostolic authority is the commands of God. 
And on top of that, it's not just commanding, but it's exhorting. It's willing to come alongside that person and to practically admonish them, teaching them, exhorting them, pointing them wisely in the right direction. And then he says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase there, in the Lord Jesus Christ, literally means by the authority of Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by, this is an intense exhortation. He commands them, he exhorts them, and he does so on the basis of the authority of Jesus himself. Why? Because Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, signifies the head of the church, the Lord of the church. Jesus is ultimately the Lord of the church. And even at the practical uh, uh, local church level, Christ is the head of every church. It's ultimately his authority, leaders in the church, pastors, elders, overseers, what what have you. We are mere under shepherds of the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the true Lord and Savior of the body. If we truly grasp that concept, and listen to this, I believe this with all my heart, not just because I wrote it, because I believe it. If we truly grasp that, Christ, the Lord of the church, it would, it, would, it would be the answer to all of our problems in, in the sense that all of our problems, because we would understand that our sin and our offenses in the body of Christ are directed ultimately to Him. Remember when the Apostle Paul, ironically Paul himself, remember when Paul in Acts chapter 9, the Lord appears to him on that Damascus road, right? He has that theophany, light shines, he heard the voice, right? He saw the living, he saw the living Christ and Jesus uh, approached him and he said to him, uh, he said to him, you know, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what, what, why is that significant? Because Paul was not physically persecuting Jesus. Jesus, of course, was already resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And so when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? What he's saying is, by persecuting my little ones, you are persecuting me. By persecuting my body, you are afflicting grief upon me. In other words, this is how invested, this is how personal, intimate, this is how indissoluble the union between Christ and his church is. Whatever we do that is grievous, sinful, and offensive to the local church, we do to him. And if we take that perspective, far be it from us, O Lord, that we should offend you in any way. Instead, we would walk with trepidation, fear, reverence. This admonition, by the way, is a gospel issue in many ways, but the, the, the whole goal of the admonition is repentance, right? Look at what he says. He says, not only do we command and exhort you in Jesus Christ, he says, but this is what the command would be, to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. In other words, the reason I say repentance, even though the word repentance is not here per se, is because Paul is calling for a complete and total about face. He is calling for them to repent, to turn from what they're doing. To eat in a quiet fashion is obviously to correct their propensity to engage in harmful gossip or meddling in other people's affairs. And the reference here to eat your own bread also means that what Paul is saying is that a person, through repentance, needs to recalibrate their life. 
so that instead of providing strife for the church, you are providing for your own needs. You're bearing your own load and you're not living on the good graces of the church that by this point in time, that has become an exploitation of the benevolence of the church. It's an exploitation. It's no longer an issue of grace. This is why Paul is calling uh, for here, what he's calling for here is a total and complete and utter transformation. He's calling for a total transformation of the person's heart, his attitude, his character, and his lifestyle. Therefore, when Paul says that he called the church to mark that person, to disassociate from that person in the hope that that person will actually feel a kind of shame and isolation, what he's looking for here is for them to become introspective, to evaluate. Matter of fact, look at that, that term there where he says, he says uh, in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. I tell you, that's exactly where our culture does not accept whatsoever. Does not accept whatsoever. Um, I'll just leave it at that because that's a whole other sermon I was about to go off on. The shame, the word shame there is very important because the, the, the verb entrepo literally means to turn in upon yourself. Listen to what MacArthur says. The idea is that of isolation from the fellowship so that it will cause the sinning believer to reflect on their condition, see themselves for the wicked and recalcitrant, that is rebellious, sinner that they are and to be ashamed and change their behavior. The repentance and restoration of the sinning member is always the goal of church discipline. So this person is in the steps, in the throes of church discipline, not to the point that they have been completely thrown out of the congregation, but there is now a call for the members of the body to begin to draw back so that that person will see their folly and understand that what they're doing is not in keeping with the gospel. That's what the instruction is all about. And that's why Paul, in admonishing these people, he directs them to his word. When he says instruction, again, he is saying that they should see his commands as absolute authoritative. Look with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, there in the context of sexual immorality and the moral purity of the church, how does Paul conclude this section? He says in verse 8, 1 Thess 4, 8, he says, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his, spirit, his Holy Spirit to you. So if you reject his teaching there in that context on sexual immorality, you are not rejecting man. This is not just because this is the way Paul wants it to be, but because this teaching is coming straight from the authority of God. Now, as with all situations in church discipline, even as MacArthur pointed out, the impression here is that what Paul is talking about here is that we should strive as much as possible with this person in admonishing this person to keep a tone of brotherly love. This is not a, this is not a reactionary type of approach. This is not a hauling off and, and becoming harsh and bitter at somebody and yelling at somebody. That's not what the call is. This is the broken heart of the household of God. Because he says, 
Don't regard him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. And therefore, it reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the church, the ultimate, the basic, the fundamental identity of the local church is that of a family. We're a household. We're God's children, and therefore we are brethren. That's why it makes no sense for Christians not to get along. Man, you're going to spend all eternity with each other. Figure it out. What are you going to do, avoid each other in heaven? Oh, here he comes. Here she comes. Oh, forget. You ain't going to get away with that in heaven. Holy Spirit be like, get together. (laughs) There's no sin in you anyway, so now you can talk. So why shouldn't we conform to that ideal now? Resolve our issues now. Never allow issues like this to creep up. Recognize that we are children of God. That we have the bond of the Spirit. We have the bond of of peace, the unity of the Spirit together because of our union, our shared corporate union with Christ. You know, in 1 John chapter 3, John goes so far, just so that we feel the weight of this, brothers, I've been thinking about this. We are supposed to lay down our life for our brethren. We throw that around. I throw that around. We know that conception in our heart. Maybe we've memorized the verses. But the reality is, is yes, This is how deep our bond in the Spirit is. That we are willing, if need be, to lay down our life for one another. This is not theoretical in Scripture. Not only is this potential, it is actual. You look at Hebrews, for example, chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. There, the author of Hebrews is encouraging the church because he says, look, You actually went so far as to identify with people that were being put under arrest, that were being paraded around, made a spectacle in society. You were even willing to go visit them in prison to your own detriment. And that's right. And that's right. That's how deep our bond of love should go for one another. We should be prepared for this now. And this is always why we have to engage in church discipline the way that we do, because it's family business. And like any faithful family, you don't just let things persist and go on and on unaddressed. No, you address the issue. You have a family meeting. You meet in the living room. You sit down. You hash it out. And that's what Paul's calling for here. It's also important for us to see this, uh, this idea here of brotherly love, this filial connection viewing ourselves as a family because it reminds us that as a church we don't have the right to misuse our authority we can't become prideful or hateful or graceless or cold or loveless the leaders of the church need to be reminded that we can never lord our authority over the sheep but remember that the whole goal of our instruction is for the blessedness of the church not just the submission of the church to your authority. Let me give you a slew of passages on this. Ready? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience in a sincere faith. That's the goal in all ministry. 2 Corinthians, maybe even more uh, direct to what we're talking about. 2 uh, Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. 
He says, not Paul talking here, not that we, i.e. the apostles, not that we lord our authority over your faith, he's saying, but we are workers with you or fellow workers for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 because there we have both the over and the under dynamic at work. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse, in verse 1 here. He says, Therefore, I, exor- I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So in other words, he's saying, look, what I'm prescribing, I'm prescribed to myself. I take my own medicine in a sense. He says, a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Here's the, uh, here's the uh, verb, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. You have to have the right motive. Can't become a drudgery. According to the will of God, not for sordid gain. You have false motives. We talked about this last week. You have false motives in the ministry. You're doomed. Not for sordid gain, but eagerness, with eagerness. And here we go. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The whole purpose of church discipline is not to exercise your authority. That's not the point. The point is that by exercising your delegated, God-given, Christ-given authority, you might produce repentance and the peaceable fruit of righteousness that comes from that repentance. That's the whole purpose. And members of the body too, the members of the church, we are, you are likewise to seek peace, to promote unity, Ephesians chapter 4, to pray for reconciliation and the spiritual well-being of the church. That's exactly right. That's why the final admonition does not seek to overwhelm a person with shame in their sin, but to win them over as a brother or a sister in Christ This exact advice is something that Paul himself practiced. One more place. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There the apostle practiced what he preached yet again. And this is is especially potent because the problems that are going on in this text have to do with Paul himself. He's not trying to reconcile other people now. This is an offense taking place leveled at the apostle himself. In other words, there was someone in the church of Corinth who was undermining and attacking the apostle Paul himself, undermining his authority so much so that he went so far as to say Paul was not an apostle. And that person was put under church discipline. But is that the point of it all? Look at verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2, 5. But if anyone has caused sorrow... He's caused sorrow not to me, but in, some degree, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. What a great perspective. I know he offended you. I know you're the one that's offended. But if you have Paul's perspective, you would take a step back and you would acknowledge, you know what? It's not even about me being offended. It's about what it does to the body of Christ. Don't you see? That's the problem. He says, sufficient for such a person, such a one, is the punishment which was afflicted by the majority, i.e. the members of the church, 
verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And what does he go, what does he go on to say there? That I left out of my notes? He says in verse 11, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. There is a spiritual dynamic going on. There is a spiritual level that is, that is at work. There's a spiritual reality behind our verbal conversations with, with each other. The drama of the church. There are spiritual entities at work. There are the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Powers in high places that are active moving. In other words, there are demonic powers that are energizing vicious attitudes and Vices and sins against the body of Christ. We need to be aware of this. Satan is on the prowl. And he wants to have the last laugh. But the only way to disarm him is by showing the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. That will distill. That will disarm. That will expose the evil tag. That's the only way to get to the place where you can now turn back and see. See that? Oh man, if we would have continued going down that path of you're attacking me, I'm attacking you, you hold this against me, I hold this against Don't you understand who's going to win in the end? Many times when these kind of issues explode upon the local church, people get to the point they don't even know what the original conflict was. They've completely forgotten. I've seen it. I've seen it roll out right in front of my eyes. I think they even know what you're fighting about anymore. It's absurd. It's spiritual. Die. Die. Just die to yourself. Humble yourself. Paul says when we are slandered, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, says when we are slandered, what's our response? We conciliate. You can't offend a dead person. (laughs) And when you're dead to your rights, when you see yourself as a slave before Christ, and you understand, what can man do to me? If God is for me, who is against me? Now, one last thing. You may have thought I skipped it. I didn't skip it. I saved it. Big difference. And that is the encouragement of the disciplined or faithful members of the church. And for that, we need to back up to verse 13 where he said it. He said, he said in the midst of all this, <laughs> brethren, in the midst of all the chaos and the hardships that come with sin and dysfunction in the church, in the midst of it all, there is a strong adversative here. In verse 13, he says, But as for you, big difference here, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. What's the implication? The implication is exactly what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You get around enough sort of sinful, negative, pessimistic, divisive, unruly, undisciplined people, you will become like that. Don't think you're above it. It can rub off on you. And therefore... What Paul is calling for is for members that are walking in an orderly, disciplined fashion to stay the course, not to allow these issues to rub off on them, and not to allow these issues to discourage them. You know, he doesn't say it here in this verse in Thessalonians, but when Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, you know what his ultimate perspective is at this point? It is eschatology. Let me give you some parallels. 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Sounds the same? It is the same. How about Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13? Maybe a little clearer. Therefore, I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. That's a heavy one there because what he's saying there is like, look, as you look into my life, Paul would say, as you look into my life and you see what's going on with me, the mighty apostle Paul, the father of our faith, the founder of our church being beat up, mistreated, persecuted, and thrown behind bars, you think you could be discouraged? You bet you could be discouraged. You could be overwhelmed with grief. He says, don't. Don't lose heart. He says, because this is for your glory. And that glory is ultimately eschatological glory. Where do you get all this language? I submit to you that the Apostle Paul got this from the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable right in the midst of his teaching on eschatology. Just got done talking about his second coming. And this is what he says. He says, now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times... I underlined that. I, I took note of that. I milked that for all it was worth. It says, at all times, they ought to pray. Who ought to pray? The disciples, the church, the Christian. You ought to pray and not lose heart. Isn't that remarkable? I think that's incredible. Just got done talking about the final judgment. In the context that follows that, Luke 18, he talks about the great apostasy that's coming. Paul talked about that in these letters. Therefore, Jesus, like Paul, is urging us to endure, to persevere, to continue, to look up when we find ourselves overwhelmed with the troubles of this age. It should strike us as remarkable that in light of Paul's powerful teaching on the eschaton, brothers and sisters, I mean, he just got done talking about things that are coming upon this earth that will take your breath away. An antichrist deception, an antichrist-led tribulation, uh, uh, an apostasy, a God-sent delusion of cosmic proportions that is coming upon this world. And who has time for ecclesiology at that point? Who has time for church order? Who has time to have a theology of work and an ethic of hard work. Well, Paul did. He saw that that was not an excuse to surrender personal piety or Christian maturity or how to live a disciplined life or working hard with your hands or being responsible, paying the bills in light of the eschaton. And neither should we. Neither should we, brothers and sisters. And therefore, what this tells us is that even the encroaching eschaton, the days of tribulation, the coming persecution that Paul has spoken about over and over and over should not produce in us pessimism, fatalism that can easily zap our zeal, disqualify our love, deflate our joy, These trials can produce that if we're not on our guard. See, brothers and sisters, this passage, these lessons that Paul's been teaching us here on having a disciplined life, a gritty character that endures, there's a redeeming value here to these things. 
because it carries us beyond this fallen world, beyond this present evil age. I'll give you one more text. I told you one more. Here's, that was a semicolon. Here's one more. Hebrews 12 will end with this. Because through this instruction and through the discipline of the Lord, whether it's corrective discipline or formative discipline, what's the difference? Well, formative discipline is what Hebrews is talking about, Hebrews 12. And that has more to do with like training. The the Greek word means training us. The Lord is training us and that is disciplining us in that way. And, And that discipline happens through our suffering in the context of Hebrews through our persecution. Or whether we're under corrective discipline or whether we are engaged in corrective discipline, which that's talking about what Paul's talking about here in terms of having to disassociate and shame people in the congregation because of walking in undisciplined fashion. Either way, God is training us. And the goal is that God is wanting to make us whole. What is Paul calling for here in Thessalonians? Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. This is what he's calling for. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet. There's your disciplined life. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What's so glorious about that? This is on the way to the new Jerusalem. This is on the way to the city of God. When people are walking in this undisciplined, unruly fashion and they deserve the discipline of the church and they need the corrective discipline of the church, all we're doing is we're saying, get back in line. File back in because this line is heading to the new Jerusalem and you don't want to be out of step because of this eschatological trajectory that we are on in light of the city of God, you don't want to find yourself outside the city. You don't want to find yourself in a state of rebellion. You don't want to find yourself in sin when you are getting ready to enter into a myriad of angels and you are getting ready to go and meet the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. You want to be healthy. You want to be whole. You want to be obedient. Let's pray for that. Father, This word may not apply to anybody directly, meaning we may not have people that are refusing to work, but it applies to all of us in principle that we don't want to have any area of our life that is out of step with the gospel. And if and when it is God, would you graciously discipline us? Would you graciously, because we are not illegitimate children, But because you are our Heavenly Father, would you graciously and and, and lovingly bring in your rod of correction so that this joint would not be put out of place, that we would not be dislocated, but that we would receive the healing balm that comes with the sweetness of, of unity and fellowship with the church for your glory, O Lord, and for our good, we pray. Amen.